Personal finance expert Andrew Hallam made his mark as a New York Times bestselling author of Millionaire Teacher and Millionaire Expat, two books that detail his journey about how he built a million-dollar portfolio of low-cost ETFs on a teacher's salary. Mr. Hallam, who started investing as a teenager and became a millionaire at 37, has a new book out this month, Balance, How to Invest and Spend for Happiness, Health and Wealth. Balance was inspired by Mr. Hallam's deep dive into why many people equate success with money and career. While these aren't such bad goals, he says, there is more to life than work and a salary. In fact, Mr. Hallam says success should be measured by life satisfaction based on four factors. Strong relationships, having enough money, of course, good health and a sense of purpose. But how do we achieve this? Welcome to Pocketful of Dirhams. I'm Felicity Glover, the personal finance editor at The National. Joining me today is personal finance expert and author Andrew Hallam, who's here to talk about his new book and why it's important to find a balance in your financial life. Before we begin, don't forget to subscribe to Pocketful of Dirhams on your favorite podcasting app. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Thanks very much for the invitation, Felicity. It's really exciting to hear that you've just released a new book, Balance, How to Invest and Spend for Happiness, Health and Wealth. Can you tell us the inspiration behind the book? For me, I think it was hinged on what I think is a really warped definition of success. So often we hear people talk about success as it relates to money and career, but you know, when we ask someone why they want to do something, like why, why do you want more money or why do you want a better career? And those aren't bad goals. But when we ask somebody why they want them and you continue to ask them why and try and boil down what their actual purpose for that is, they end up talking about things like life satisfaction. You know, they talk about how it would make them happy or make them feel more fulfilled or make them feel more secure. So these are all components of life satisfaction. And so when I looked at a broader holistic sense of success and truly what success really meant, success equaled life satisfaction. Based on that, it was that simple. So now in terms of how we abuse the word success, when we look at research on what is it that actually makes people or enhances people's life satisfaction, it boils down to four things. One is obviously having enough money. The second is having strong relationships. The third is having your health. And the fourth is a sense of purpose. So if we want success, like real success, true success, not, not a superficial one-dimensional definition of it, then these four quadrants are things that we really need to pursue. So for me, as a, as a finance writer, I found myself often I'd meet people who would end up saying things to me like, oh, you really like finance. You really like personal finance. You like money. You like investing. You're really passionate about it. And, and honestly, honestly, Felicity, this isn't something that I see myself as passionate about. Um, people listening to this right now will know me as this person who's into personal finance. My, my family and my close friends would know that, no, that, that's not my, my main purpose. I'm definitely a lifestyle person. So lifestyle first. So what we need to do is we need to focus more holistically on what it is that enhances life satisfaction. Really, it's one, having enough money, sure, 
but it's relationships, which are super key, health, and a sense of purpose. So that's what I try to encapsulate in the book Balance. I feel as though you have really tapped into a global sentiment here that we're seeing at the moment. You know, with the pandemic, um, I feel that it's changed a lot of people over the past couple of, well, nearly two years. One example is the great resignation trend that, that has emerged, you know, over the past six or so months. Do you think that people are now putting happiness and well-being first and that money is becoming an outdated measure of success? I think it should have always been an outdated measurement of success. I do think that what the pandemic probably did is it deprived us of the things that we truly connect with, which is our relationships with other people, other people, bottom line. It deprived us of that. I think in doing that, you know, through the isolation that was required during the pandemic and just to an extent still is required. And when we become isolated from that, which we need the most, I think at that stage, people start to often then reprioritize and ask themselves some really hard questions like, what is it that we really want out of life? They start to recognize to the essence of their mortality. I think, you know, something like the pandemic may have realigned people's focus such that they recognize they have to live for today. And obviously we have to live for tomorrow, but we certainly have to live for today. And, and focusing on relationships is so key because that's what we want more than anything. If you look at that Harvard study of adult development that I referenced in my book, and it's an eight plus decade long study. Essentially, it's, uh, it's, it's looking at what makes people successful based on a true definition of that, a true definition, a holistic definition, which is, which is life satisfaction. That's it. What makes people successful? It's your relationships. It's your friendships. It's your loved ones. And so this study that went on for eight decades is just so, so academically robust. And I think that aligned with what people have anecdotally been feeling through the pandemic. Yeah, I think you're right, Felicity. That is one of the things where people are starting to reprioritize putting jobs that they may not feel really passionate about and starting to recognize that they need to perhaps, in many cases, reprioritize what's important. Definitely. I think what I also like about your new book is that you've devoted a section on retirement and how to live on less and also still keep working if you don't have enough massive, you know, millions of money tucked away for your retirement. And I think, you know, people learning to live with less um, is all part of part of that as well. It is. It's it's funny because when I, you know, I've given so many talks in the Dubai region and people will say to me, sometimes they'll even introduce me as this guy, the school teacher who's who's now retired, or they'll tell me I'm retired. And and I'll never retire. I don't want to retire. And, and at one stage, Felicity, I would have heard someone like me saying that, and I would have figured that that person was crazy. But what we need as human beings to truly be successful is we need a sense of purpose. We need to feel like there's a reason to get up in the morning. And the nice thing about, I think, the concept of perhaps building financial independence such that you can choose to do what you want to do, work at what you want to work at and work part-time or volunteer your time, which is still a job, but it's just an unpaid job. Getting back to that part-time work, I think, just for that little bit of income, it takes all the stress off people. So the idea that you have to reach your financial freedom number, where at some stage you're going to retire, and retirement is really quite a 
it's a fairly recent concept, but today so many people strive for it. Yet when we look at, and I bring the research on this in the book Balance as well, when we look at early retirement, when we retire early, and of course, this doesn't apply to everybody. So somebody's going to listen to this and go, oh, that's not me. But on aggregate, when we retire early, we die earlier. And one of the realities there is that we're not connecting with people of different age demographics. We're no longer using our brains to the same extent. So it's much like any muscle. You use it or you lose it. So the research on it is really compelling with respect to earlier cases of dementia, earlier cases of Alzheimer's, the brain needs to be used. And I think, Felicity, that when you are believing that you'll continue to work and continue to earn money, and you'll find something that you want to do, that alleviates a lot of stress for people today. That re- alleviates that feeling that you must hit a certain financial number at a certain point in time. It also opens things up a lot such that people can say, well, geez, I I might not need to invest or save as much money as I initially thought because I don't need to hit necessarily this financial freedom number at which point I'll never earn any more money again, which opens things up for you to be able to spend a little bit more of your money on actual experiences. And spending money on experiences, especially with people we love and respect, is what truly enhances our life satisfaction. Again, that's what makes us successful. Enhancing life satisfaction equals success. The money thing, that's a really warped, you know, money and career, as as I say, and I keep saying, that's a warped definition of success. Absolutely. Definitely. Can I ask you as well, just if we can go into investing and the pandemic. Has that has the pandemic changed anything about the way you invest? I mean, you you had very successful books with millionaire expat, millionaire teacher, but do you remain true to your tried and tested portfolio of low-cost stock and bond index funds? Or have you ventured into some new things um, during the pandemic? There's always going to be a new thing. Um, so for me, I've been investing for 32 years. And I have a system now where obviously I build my portfolio of low cost ETFs. I set a target allocation that suits my tolerance for risk. And I maintain that through thick and thin. It's kind of like, think about a baseball team. And if you could play for a team that would always hit singles and it's not exciting, you know, you're, you're not knocking the ball out of the park, but you're not necessarily risking getting called out either or striking out. You're just hitting singles all day long. It's really, really hard to beat a, a team that just hits singles all day long. And the reality here is that if you do that with a portfolio of index funds or ETFs, no matter what happens with the markets, whether the markets go up, down, or sideways over any 10-year period, you are going to beat at least 90% of professional money managers. And those professional money managers are doing all kinds of things. They're trying to short the market. They're getting in bits of pieces of crypto. They're doing all kinds of different things. But you're going to beat 90% of them over any given 10-year span. So for me, 
I like to think of getting on with my life in terms of the things that are more important than somehow trying to be one of those people that in most cases in vain try to end up beating the market when long-term statistically, the odds of them doing so are so, so slim. And then when we start looking at the life satisfaction research on this, it's so compelling that we spend as little time as possible thinking about our investments, that if at all possible, we have something on autopilot. So when you are set to invest your money, I love all-in-one ETFs. All-in-one portfolio ETFs are so simple. A single fund, you buy it, it's fully allocated such that it has component of stocks and international and US and emerging market stocks and has a bond allocation and it rebalances itself such that it maintains a target allocation at all times so that you don't have to think about it. The less you think about money in respect to this, the better your returns will be. So coming back to your question, uh, no, I haven't changed anything. No, it doesn't sound like you have, but it, it's still doing very well. But that kind of brings me into my next question, this very interesting story about how millennials and Gen Z are driving the active trading trend again, and they're ignoring the less risky, longer-term benefits of passive do-it-yourself investing. So, of course, it's all influenced by, you know, the Reddit army, meme stocks, crypto, and FOMO, I guess. Um you started investing as a teenager and became a millionaire at around 37. How would you advise today's youth on investing based on your experiences? I would say, and this is going to sound really controversial to, to, most, to most of the listeners, I think, but I would say that most people, I would say 99%, and I'm making that up, but the vast majority of people actually don't know what their tolerance for financial risk is. It's easy to have a high tolerance for financial risk or think you have a high tolerance for financial risk when everything you're buying is going up. And that's really been the case. I mean, the last 10, 11 years, anything, any, anything anyone is buying is going up. And the higher the risks we take, the more we've actually been rewarded. So people get a false sense of what their actual risk tolerance is. I think that if you started to invest before the year 2000, you've got a pretty good sense of what your risk tolerance is because you went through three years in a row where US market didn't make money. I mean, it dropped three years in a row. And from 2000 to 2010, we went an entire decade where US stocks didn't grow. Growth stocks were even worse. So tech stocks from 2000 to 2010 lost a tremendous amount of money over that 10-year period on aggregate. So these are the stocks that people are so, many people are so in love with today is the high growth stuff. We don't know our tolerance for risk until we actually face it, until we end up with a decade-long period or a three years in a row where markets drop, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. And when they do, the, the financial media is always, it's not saying things like, hey, it's going to it's going to recover next year. Don't worry. <laughs> it's always saying it's going to be another 1929 and it's going to fall further. Like it's always saying that because of course, negative headlines draw eyeballs and eyeballs draw advertisements and that draws money. And so it's all based on this. So you're not going to get when we have big, big declines, you're not going to get a lot of sensible headlines saying, actually, this is good for young people. It's actually good because you can purchase assets at a lower price than you could have when the markets are higher. 
Andrea, you include quite a few case studies in balance. One of my favourites was Casey, who I found very inspirational in terms of the way he lived life and could still save. Who was the most inspirational for you? Um, Perhaps it was somebody you feel had found that perfect balance of happiness, health and wealth. And what lessons did you learn from them? Oh, there are so many people all of us can draw inspiration from. And, and Casey Coleman was definitely, definitely one that, that, that inspired me. I would probably say Bill Green would be one of the people who inspired me the most. He was a vice principal at the school that I taught at when I, when I first began teaching. And his, his health was a train wreck. He, he had all kinds of issues with his, his hips. He had both hips replaced before, I think before he was 42, he had all kinds of kidney stone issues that he just couldn't resolve. And his wife ended up having a, a, a debilitating stroke to the point where she's unable to live on her own. She's, she, she needs full-time medical care. And Bill, despite all of this stuff, he has just maintained so much gratitude for the things that he has. And oh my gosh, and he's wonderful with, with his wife. He's, he's incredible. He, uh, I think he was probably the greatest inspiration for me is to count what you have and not necessarily what you don't have. Look at all the wonderful things that are in your life. He used to write down little post-it notes of the things that he was grateful for, and he would put them on a, on a mirror, but he'd write down these things and he'd consciously look at them. And, and it's such an important goal for us. We set professional goals, we set academic goals, but so rarely do we set goals with respect to gratitude. Definitely. I think you're right there. And finally, Andrew, what are you hoping that people will take away from balance to achieve financial security, but also the health and well-being, the gratitude? My hope, Felicity, is that people recognize what they're doing well because so many people who will be reading this will be reinforced when they see that, wow, you know, I didn't necessarily take that that really high paying job. I said no to it because I thought it would take way too much time for my family. My hope is that those people would look at the research on it and say, you know what, I, I made the right decision. I think to the essence of money itself in terms of how much money can actually enhance your life satisfaction, I hope people are able to take something away from that as well so that they don't necessarily strive for a position that they might not love. I mean, we're all going to die. So when we work, we are literally, our employers are paying for pieces of our lives. So we have to enjoy what we do. And to do something because it pays a lot of money that we might not enjoy is giving away pieces of your life to your employer. And the research suggests that beyond a certain point, more money does not equal more life satisfaction or happiness. So that becomes a pointless waste. So I guess these are the things that I really want to be have sort of those takeaways, that the importance of relationships and then that sense of purpose. Like it's okay to continue working. In fact, it's beneficial to continue working part-time in your, in, your, uh, in your golden years if you can. And living your best life. Yes. Thank you this week to Andrew Hallam, personal finance expert and author of Balance, how to invest and spend for happiness, health, and wealth. If you would like advice on your personal finance issues, you can write to me at pfatthenational.ae. And remember, PF stands for personal finance. Please do subscribe to Pocketful of Dirhams on your podcasting app to receive weekly updates. 
and also leave us a review so we know what you think. This episode was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan, and I've been your host, Felicity Glover. <laughs>